Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna on News Talk. Yes, you can email the show aliveandkicking at newstalk.com or you'll find me on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Claire McKenna Presents. Coming up this morning, Enda McGrattan, also known as Veda Lady, on life with HIV and using his voice to replace stigma with pause vibes. I'll meet the husband and wife team who turned their PhDs in coaching of world-class athletes into wearable tech that will teach you how to live your best life. And can you help with dementia research in Ireland? So what kind of a health and wellness week did I have? Well, I have to say it's been a bit of a whirlwind with my sister and her family staying with us. We're all in the one house and it can only be described as gorgeous chaos with lots of lovely family meals. And I really have been reminded this week that it's one of my most favourite things to do. Fill a table with food and gather the people you love around it. It is getting easier to say goodbye, I would have to say. Um, It is what it is. But while I do always lament that we don't have a life where we're intertwined on a weekly basis, I feel twice a year isn't really enough for those delicious people. But I will say that when we do see each other, we embrace quality time more so than maybe if they were around all the time. And I have to say I enjoyed not looking at my phone as much this week Because there just wasn't time. There's a five-year-old, a three-year-old, a two-year-old, a six-month-old, as well as my own kids, multiple outings, work and life thrown into the mix. And my head is in a much better place for it. It's such a moth to a flame type thing, isn't it? We get drawn into it. And I do get lots of information, organisation and entertainment from my phone. But like the moth getting burnt by the bulb, it doesn't actually make me feel good all of the time. It's draining and I definitely feel so much better without it. So I will endeavour to continue that and use it a lot less next week when I have a more quiet house. You can email the show alive and kicking at newstalk.com. I do love to hear from you because over the last few weeks, I have got to meet many of you. Um, I met a couple of people who had gone to techno yoga because they had heard Nisha, who runs those classes on the show and a couple of people. And I love, love, love when you do. People say, I didn't know whether to come up to you, but I wanted to say I really love the show. I put the headphones in on a Sunday. I head off for my walk or I get back into bed or I'm making breakfast or whatever it is. And they say that a lot of the topics or guests on the show have really helped them. And that means so much to me to hear that. And I love you to be part of the show. So if there's a topic you would love covered or you'd like to find out more about, always email aliveandkicking at newstalk.com. Now, the World Health Organization has called a global effort to tackle dementia, labelling it a public health priority. In Ireland, 5,000 cases of dementia are diagnosed every year. By 2050, it's expected there'll be two and a half times more people diagnosed, many of whom will depend on long-term care in nursing home settings. We don't have enough Irish-based information about care settings and a new research group has been launched, the first of its kind, to investigate what prevents or motivates people to take part in research in nursing homes. I'm joined on the line by JP Connolly, Clinical Research Manager of the Dementia Research Group with St James's Hospital. You're very welcome, JP. Hi Claire, good to talk to you. Tell us a little bit about this new survey that's been launched. Well, Claire, it's a national survey that we're launching aimed at improving research in nursing homes. Um, So recruitment of staff, residents and family of of, uh, residents to research in nursing homes is often difficult, uh, not just in Ireland, but internationally. 
Um, this is a problem because if, if you have poor recruitment rates for your clinical trial or intervention, it means you don't get enough data and the findings don't represent what's really going on. You might get a skewed picture of how effective an intervention is, so the results might say that it's effective um, when it isn't and, and vice versa. Um, so recruitment is really important. And this new survey that I've been working on and developing with Professor Nicole uh, Mother in UCC is trying to find out, you know, what makes people working in nursing homes that family members or residents want to take part in research or not. It's also looking at what, what areas of research these stakeholders want to see prioritised. Um, if we can get an accurate picture of, how, of these barriers to research participation and the research that stakeholders think are important, we can design much better, more effective interventions and clinical trials to improve quality of life um, and other things such as uh, reduced care liver and, and, you know, and make living in a in nursing home better for all. Um, so this is, and, and this is so important because more and more of us will be affected by dementia in the coming years, as you just mentioned, either directly or perhaps a family member or friend and we need to be able to provide the highest standard of care. And better research will help us to do that. You touched on there the, the recent survey that was conducted by the research team earlier mm. this year. It was a fairly poor response rate, less than 35 mm. surveys of the targeted 200 being completed. Yeah, what might be some of the reasons for this? Well, I mean, I suppose this is what we're trying to, we're hoping to understand by this new survey. You know, what are the barriers to taking part in research in nursing homes? Um, I think one of the reasons for the poor uptake of this survey was that uh, the one that we got the response rate on was that it was aimed at nursing home managers. And, you know, running a nursing home is a big undertaking. And recruitment and retention of staff is a huge challenge um, nowadays. Uh, ensuring the home is HICO compliant and caring for residents with increasingly complex needs. Uh, it means that managers have a, a lot on their plate. And, and I guess completing surveys you know, I mean, it necessarily falls down the priority list to ensure, I suppose, that the day-to-day care residents and the home are prioritised. Um, but I've met with a lot of managers recently and there's terrific work going on in the sector. You know, fantastic facilities, excellent care being provided. Um, there's a big appetite to be more involved with research, but we need to get data to say scientifically that X and Y are creating barriers to participation so that we can then target these. And yeah, I suppose you would want to speak to more than just the managers, wouldn't you? You'd want to be able to speak to families. You want to be able to hear from carers because unfortunately, in many cases, they have to be the voice for the people with dementia who can't necessarily communicate their needs themselves. Absolutely, yeah, yes. And that's what we're going to do in this this, this story that we're talking about or coming up. And what sort of research do we have from other countries? Um, Well, when we look at other countries, we see that... um, Recruitment and retention of staff is a, is a big factor, as are constraints on time. Um, if the research is difficult to understand, this appears to be a barrier to taking part as well. Um, so it essentially means that research needs to be easy to understand and well communicated. Other factors that I've looked at are a fear of opening, you know, the nursing home to, to scrutiny. Uh, nursing home management might question the motives of research, of the research team or indeed and the organisation who are funding the research. So and trust is a, a significant factor. So there's a lot of factors going on, but that's just a kind of a snapshot of, of some of them. But there isn't worldwide or information from other European countries about people with dementia and their care needs that we could perhaps learn from. Well, there are, and that, the data that's been taken from, from um, different countries, including the, the UK, and um, some of it's come from a systematic review. Um, so some of it is applicable to the Irish um, system, but we don't have 
the data for Ireland. So we can say that because we found that in the UK, that it necessarily translates to the Irish context, if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, you want the Irish-specific yeah, yeah, it could be different, we don't know, but it could be, yeah, yeah. And what are the specific care needs for someone with dementia? Um, gosh, well, I suppose, I mean, dementia is a really complex syndrome. Um, affects many bodily systems and processes. Um, so the needs of people living with dementia are, you know, they're equally complex and varied and, and can be challenging to treat because of that. I suppose when we think of dementia, we, we, we often think of, of, uh, of memory loss, don't we? Um, but dementia is much more than that. It's deterioration, it deterioration of memory, but it's all, it also affects thinking and behaviour and visual perception, etc. Um, people with dementia can have problems with understanding language, can experience changes in their mood, can have anxiety, depression, and they might have pure aware, a pure awareness of time, and problems with movement, concentration, hallucination. So extremely varied and, and specific to the individual. Individual, and this means the care is best is best when it's person centred and works with the person and their current needs. Um, so in the early stages, those with dementia might need extra support with planning activities, managing their finances, etc. But in, in the more advanced stages, such as those in nursing homes, the care needs might be at a much more basic level, focusing on. Uh, bathing and dressing and eating uh, and walking, etc. And again, care must, must be person-centred to, um, and letting the needs uh, guide us, the needs of the individual. Yeah, it is yeah. going to be on an individual basis. And 100%. do we know why the cases are on the increase and the World Health Organisation is calling this a public health priority? I mean, dementia is predominantly a, d- a disease of old age and, you know, we're all living longer and with much better treatments for diseases which put us you know, might have killed us years ago, like heart disease in the 60s and 70s. We've got much better treatments for those. And so not as many people are dying from, from, from those, um, those kinds of diseases. So there are a lot more older people in, in the population. Um, the longer we live, the higher our risk of dementia. In fact, the, the risk of dementia rises steeply with age. Um, 3 to 12% of those aged 70 to 80 at risk. And this rises dramatically to um, 35% and over as people age, um, come into their 90s and, be, excuse me, and beyond. Um, but the thing that we can do to reduce our risk right now, like um, giving up smoking, um, reducing alcohol intake, uh, you know, getting our blood pressure under control, protecting our head from injuries, uh, and getting our hearing tested, as hearing loss is, the, is actually the largest modifiable risk factor for, for dementia. So it's important we get people screened as early as possible, and perhaps in their 50s, um, for hearing loss. Prevention is better than cure. Wow, that's very interesting. And mm. as you say, we are living longer and we're starting to think of quality of years as opposed to quantity of years. Um, fine, exactly, yes. And yes, it's so yes. important then that we bring together this sort of information. A previous guest on the show only a, a few weeks back was mm. Sonia Lennon and she yes. often shares stories of her mom through her social media and she spoke here on this show about what a positive experience her mom with dementia has had in a nursing home setting, and we need to spread really? a bit more of those sort we of positive stories. Having had a, a dad who had dementia, I mm. will be having, I will be getting myself and my family to complete the survey, and I would urge Brilliant. people who have experience to do the same. You go to tcd.ie. That's obviously for Trinity College Dublin. TCD. Dot ie and you will find details there of how to log on and fill out the Dementia Research Group survey. JP Connolly, Thanks. Clinical Research Manager of the Dementia Research Group, thank you so much for coming on. A pleasure, Claire. Thank you so much. Coming up after the break, the PhD couple who turned their top athlete coaching knowledge into wearable tech. Alive and kicking. 
on News Talk. You're welcome back to Alive and Kicking. Now, a husband and wife team who worked with high performance athletes, including tennis stars competing at Wimbledon and Team GB athletes in the 2012 Olympics, have poured their extensive expertise in high performance sports science and behavioural change strategies into their advanced sports monitoring technology, which will be launching into the Irish market. Janine Van Someren is one half of that couple and co-founder of The Wellbeing Advantage, and she joins me on the line. Now, Janine, you're very welcome. Lovely to be chatting with you. So tell me a little bit about you and Ken then. How did you both meet? What was the meeting of minds? <laughs> the meeting of minds, the magic happened at the very wonderful St. Mary's University in London, which lots of Irish people will know by the name Strawberry Hill. So it has a long uh, connection with Irish students and, and Irish teachers through for the last I'd say 150 years so a, a great spot for any anyone wishing to study sport and exercise I would I would recommend St Mary's and Twickenham if they're looking to to travel. <laughs> and was it love at first sight? Was it love at first sight? Um, I would say that the meeting of myself and Ken would, in, would initially not be described as love at first sight but it was a long story uh, very very short um, one of our, our first meetings was actually in a human performance lab where I was the student and he was the research assistant walking around. And let's just say that my my heart's reaction to seeing this bloke walk through the lab was, was recorded by a very accurate heart rate variability monitor. To, to my shame, it has never been forgotten by my friends. <laughs> oh my God, that is incredible. And the irony of us talking now as you bring out monitoring equipment for the rest of us, we'll get to that. But when did the study of human performance turn into some of the coaching I mentioned with yeah. high performance athletes? Yeah, well, our company was founded really at the onset of COVID-19. I'd, I'd been working in southwest London. I've, I have a history of sport, health and exercise science. And I've researched the lives of, of female tennis players at Wimbledon, as you mentioned. But my main interest is in understanding people's personal challenges and motivations and what helps them perform at the highest level. Um, so while I was sort of doing my coaching with individual clients and corporate uh, companies, Ken was working alongside me at home during, during the, the sort of initial lockdown and, and he was testing elite athletes. And it really was the synergy and looking at the potential that combining both my well-being coaching and behavioural change strategies with the technology that he was using to monitor stress, recovery, rest, resilience, energy of elite athletes. And we just thought the potential of combining those two elements would be really fantastic for anyone we work with, whether it's a corporate client or an individual. And that's exactly where the Wellbeing Advantage was founded. So it was founded at the kitchen table where, you know, we're looking at each other's work and going, do you know what, there's something special here. Let's see what happens if we combine the two. And the more I kind of work in this wellness space, the more I'm, I'm starting to hear more about high performance for everybody, whether you're yeah. a stay-at-home parent or you're working in the service industry or you're working in business or you're an athlete, you know, it's there yeah. for everybody. It shouldn't just yeah. be pigeonholed to the court at Wimbledon. Absolutely not. And, you know, I, 
myself and Ken are hugely passionate about transferring lessons learned from high performance sports to everybody. Our aim is that everybody should live um, a healthier, happier life, but being allowed to perform at their best. And for us, that means that when we're working with clients, that they bring their best selves to work, but they also bring it home again. And sort of we we've taken sort of three key lessons from high performance that we bring to well-being would you, would you be interested in finding out some more I'm I'm happy to share yeah no I um, would because we hear this term <laughs> living your best yeah. life over and over again and I mean obviously you can post yeah. a picture as you're poolside somewhere or you know in the middle of a yeah. live music gig and yes that is living your best life but to kind yeah. of live at optimal health and happiness, what does that look like from, from your perspective and your knowledge? So, so from our perspective, it's, it's, it's a few things. First is well-being is the foundation for high performance. And well-being is different for everybody, whether you're an Olympic athlete or an everyday Joe like myself, to be honest. But athletes and individuals can only perform and be their best, whatever that might be when they're healthy. Um, and we can only be healthy when we look after our well-being. And, and, and for us, it's very much a personalized approach to high performance. And coaching and talking to our clients is integral to that. And it's integral to understanding what changes someone needs to do to their life or their life stresses in order to meet their needs. And again, I don't use the word high performance when I'm talking to my clients. Listen, they're, they're like you and I. They're not Olympic athletes. But in my uh, approach and the strategies that I use, it's the exact same approach and strategies I would use if I was working with an Olympic athlete. And key to that in terms of the high performance element is the understanding that the stresses and strains of everyday life while they can be all-consuming and they will bring us down, um, they actually are the things that make us stronger. The stress that athletes go through is why they train and it's why and when they become stronger, when they train. But the most important element and the key to all of this is recovery. And this is what we're real specialists in. Athletes only get stronger if they get the recovery right and our clients will only optimize their energy, will only become healthier and happier if we can get them being a little bit more physically active, if that's what their need is. But most importantly, that they get the balance between the energy they're using in their everyday life balanced with really appropriate rest and recovery. And this is something that I really specialize in is getting someone's downtime right because I can't control someone's day I can't take away an annoying boss <laughs> I can't lower your workload but I can definitely help you to optimize your energy and resilience before and after work and you know what Claire in some instances that's telling my clients they need to slow down don't go to the gym after work instead go for a very slow walk on a, on a beach or wherever you can get outside but quite often my advice to clients is you're actually doing too much and and um, this has been a real game changer for the people that I work with. Yeah, because this is the message of modern day life, isn't it? To to yeah. be constantly on, constantly yeah. doing um, and always feeling like you're not doing enough. Um, how yeah. do you suggest people know what's too much or where to pull back? 
you know, it's really difficult. And in, in, in our work, when we're, when we're not using our technology, so we use first speech technology, which is a wearable device that measures someone's energy throughout the day, a little bit like a battery pack. And we can give them an x-ray of their day of where their energy is going up and down. Now, that's one element, and it's quite specific and, and high-tech. If an, if an individual does not have that technology, it's very simply checking in with yourself, getting into the habit of checking where is my battery at. Um, so literally just on your own scale of one to 10, how do I feel? Ask yourself that when you wake up in the morning and ask yourself that at about seven o'clock at night. And based on that barometer, begin to get a pattern of where your energy is at. And my advice would be is, if you're feeling like you're tired, do not push yourself to go and do a high intensity workout in the gym because you think that'll make you feel better. It might make you feel energized and better in the short term, but in the long term, that's where my clients run into the, the potential of burnout. So this is where you have the classic corporate athlete, someone who is literally burning the candles at both ends. They are working really hard during the day in stressful, high-intensity, high-performance jobs. And then they go to the gym, they're training for a triathlon, they're extremely busy and have high sort of performing goals in their personal lives, and it just comes, becomes too much. So you have essentially a client who's burnt out, but on, the, on paper, Claire, they look great. You know, they're a high-performing executive, they're doing well in triathlons and marathons, and they're off on their holidays, and everything looks great but actually their body literally can't cope with that type of demand. And then what does that look like then when burnout comes? How will that feel? Well, burnout, the the great thing in the work that I do is that I track burnout before it actually happens. When burnout does happen, at at the end stage of burnout, when when it is chronic, that is literally someone who can't get out of bed. It, It is that sort of chronic fatigue. It is someone who is very ill. And the work that I do with both individual clients and corporate clients is we're literally monitoring heart rate variability, we're monitoring energy levels, and we're making sure that any, any changes that are happening are changes that are good, but also we can really nip any over-intensity, over-training, overdoing it, whatever word you, you give for that, you know, doing too much. We can nip that in the bud before it happens. So things like a, you know, your Apple Watch, your smartphone, your your health monitoring devices that loads of people have and are excellent, are very good at sort of giving you a, a, a sort of glimpse of your body in that moment. So what's my heart rate like now? What's my energy rate like now? And the technology that we use is more long term and better at looking at sort of those changes that are happening to someone accumulating slowly over time that could lead to burnout. Yeah, Um, because sometimes if I'm doing too much, I find I have an inability to enjoy what I'm doing, to enjoy my kids, to not necessarily enjoying my work, I have to say, once I get into this little <laughs> cocoon bubble, because it's all talking about health and wellness, I can be yeah. quite happy. But, you know, you, you're more likely to come out and 
be self-critical of how you performed yeah. or, you know, it's it, it, all the yeah. kind of negativity starts to, to come in. And I, I don't think we realise how attached that is to yeah. our rest and recovery and what we're putting into our body and how we're, we're sort of yeah. treating it. And I yeah. wanted to ask you about wearable tech then, because I have been... Um, a little slow in the uptake because I sometimes feel like I don't want that information. I don't want to be told yeah. I didn't get enough REM sleep last night because that will have an impact on how I feel yeah. in the day. So how do you navigate us knowing too much? Or I sometimes think yeah. it sounds a bit cracked that people will look at their watch and say, oh, I've, you know, I've done 8,000 steps today, so I'm just going to walk around the block until I hit 10,000. I, I, I sometimes wonder what we get in one hand, do we take away in the other by having this information at our fingertips? Yeah, you're 100% right. And listen, we all know people like that, don't we? We all know people who are taking that extra walk around the block. And in many cases, that's absolutely fine. You know, if as long as you're not getting too bogged down by the numbers, as long as you looking at the device isn't stressful, as long as you're not hooked or are you know addicted to those numbers but i i would completely agree with you that a lot of these wearables people get too hooked on on the numbers and in from our point of view and from sort of a physiological monitoring point of view they're getting hooked on the on on numbers that whilst they're good for looking at long-term trends so in a you know in a long period of time they can they can track what's changed but people aren't doing that People are just looking at how I am at this moment in time. And really that that data is meaningless unless you're tracking it over longer periods of time. And um, the wearable device that we have, our clients will, will only wear it for one block of time for three to five days. And then it's up to them how often they wear it after that. So they get sort of a decision about when I'm going to use it, they choose, okay, I'm going to monitor myself at this time because it suits me because this is what I'm doing. Clients that I work with for a bit longer will say, actually, I'd love you, I'd love to wear the device while I'm traveling and see how the impact that has on, on, on me. But the, the wearable devices that, that you're talking about, whilst they're good at giving data, they, they do rely on movement. They do rely on heart rate. Their accuracy, again, for somebody like myself and Ken, who are really, you know, sports scientists, physiologists at heart, we will be concerned about the accuracy of that. Now, it's fine if all you're doing is, is to inform you of how many steps you've done or what your heart rate is at this term, point in time. But if you're looking at actually implementing behavioral change strategies or changes to your lifestyle or really monitoring your capacity to do well at work or to perform, then really having a, a, more, a more accurate wearable device that looks at heart rate variability, 3D motion sensors, links it with your diary, all the things that our, our device does, then it's better at giving you trust and confidence that the decisions you're making to change in your life mm. are based on credible data. And again, myself and Ken are sticklers for the detail. We're, we're, we're making really, really tiny marginal changes to people's everyday habits that have a long-term sustainable impact on their health and well-being. So it's really tiny changes people are making, but the impact is 
huge in terms of um, sleeping better, waking up feeling energized. Like you say, you're an excellent example of a client that we have where they love their work. They absolutely thrive when they're engaged in whatever job they're doing, but quite often can come home quite just exhausted and feel like they're not able to give really their best selves to their family, which is, to be honest, it's what people want to do. And yeah. um, we, we really help clients to work on tiny strategies that allow them to give their best at work, but really more importantly for their well-being and their happiness is that when they're at home and when they're with the people they love, that they're their best selves, like they're, they're, they're most pure and happy versions of themselves. And we yeah. do that. And that sounds by, within reach when yeah. you describe it yeah. that way. And it's not the drop address size in two weeks transformation. No, no, it's small no changes that you sort of one day go, oh, I haven't felt tired for a while. It's it's that yeah. kind of change. And, I, and that's yeah. part of the health message. I'm very passionate about sharing. Well, thank you so much for coming on. People can find out more at thewellbeingadvantage.com. Janine Van Summeren, Thank you so much. And I think one of the most important things you said with all the technology and knowledge we have, we just have to check in with ourselves in the morning and the evening, say, how do I feel? What could have impacted that? And we have that ourselves. Janine, thank you so, so much. Thank you, Claire. Listen, have a lovely day. Lovely to chat. Coming up after the break, Enda McGrattan on turning HIV stigma into pause vibes. Alive and kicking on News Talk. You're very welcome back. Now, my next guest, Enda McGrattan, also known as Veda Lady, began performing drag online during COVID. When the topic of being HIV positive and experiences around that were discussed, he found so many people contacted him to say how much it had helped them. He reached out to known HIV activist Robbie Lawler and they started a podcast, Pause Vibes, providing a safe place for the sharing of stories of those living with HIV and their allies. And Enda joins me in studio now. Enda, thank you so much for coming on. I'm very happy to be here. Thank you. Can we start with Veda, please? Because yes. how do you refer to Veda? Is it your alter ego? Is it like something you do or is it part of who you are? I've been in drag since the late 90s and working professionally since maybe the beginning of the noughties. So Veda pays my bills. She's kind of my boss. I work for her. Um, And I think over time, at the start of a drag career, you're creating a character. But if you stay in that character for half of your life, (laughs) then the the character sort of just becomes part of who you are. So, and I think in the queer community too, we're used to using various names for various people. So there are people in my life who would never call me Enda. Never. Just would never come out of their mouth, you know. And then... The opposite is also true. (laughs) Yeah, I've seen you perform many times. Veda is fabulous. Thank you. You make a very good looking woman and man. I am the most beautiful woman in the world in my price range, Claire. (laughs) Well, I think it's quite a feat to be able to be enigmatic and draw people in as a man and a woman. So good for you, Enda. And tell me about these performances online and, and when this kind of door, as I mentioned, began to open into sharing life with HIV. Sure. Um, Well, I lived in the closet with HIV for the best part of 10 years. And the first, I'd say five, were a real struggle. 
part of that was because I had fully isolated myself by promising my partner not to tell anybody. Um, and also because the you equals you message didn't exist yet. So you equals you for those at home who don't know, it stands for undetectable equals untransmittable. And what that means is that the person like myself living with HIV who's on effective medication can't pass that virus on to someone else. It's very depressing to live with a health condition that you feel you can pass on to, to the people that you love. So until you equals you became a known fact, and until I fully accepted it myself, I think I struggled with the stigma of living with HIV much more. So um, that said, <laughs> one day I was trying to write a song. I, I fancy myself as a bit of a, a songwriter. And this idea of writing this song about coming out of the closet about my HIV status just started pouring out of me. And I wrote this song called I Came Out One Night. And, um, and I realized when I was singing the song, even for the first time, that this was how I was going to come out about my status. So in 2019, I recorded the song with my friend uh, who helped me write it, Lady K. Hi, Lady K. And um, we made a video and we released it online on World AIDS Day at the end of 2019 in December. And it got an amazing response from the queer community and from um, outside the queer community too, of people who really... Uh, I think we're impressed by my bravery, but also understood that there was absolutely no need for me to feel shame about living with HIV. And I think part of why they understood that was the song, the message, the video, but also because nobody ever talks about it. But if you just put it on the table, most people are great crack and very sound and they just accept that, you know. But, um, but we live with internalized stigma, people who live with HIV, because there's this great history of shame around it. So... Writing the song really opened the door to this new HIV activism or artivism, as I like to call it, where I could use my creativity to destroy stigma, not just fight it, but destroy stigma. Um, and then COVID came along, another plague, another epidemic. Yeah, another pandemic. challenge to yeah. overcome. Yeah, and that shut me down in terms of my drag and my activism and my queer family, my nightlife. Like everybody else, I went through this period of extreme isolation in lockdown. And I realized, most importantly, that my mental health was the best it had been in years, probably since my HIV diagnosis. And that I lost my job, my income, my social life, which is really where I flourish, <laughs> and access to all my queer friends. And I still felt great. And I knew it was because I didn't have those cobwebs of shame and stigma hanging around in my house. You know, I felt like there was a lot of light and air in my life. And that even though I had nothing really that I thought I depended on so much, I felt great. And I wanted other people to know that. So when we started doing drag shows from, from my kitchen, initially um, the numbers of viewers were wild. 5,000 people would watch the show, like maybe a couple of thousand live, but another couple of thousand by the time I woke up the next morning. So I started putting HIV activism into the show, performing. I came out one night talking more about HIV and how good I felt about it since I came out. And I started getting messages from people, some living with HIV and some just living with other difficulties at that time, um, saying how much they appreciated that openness. So that got me thinking, what can I do now? from my home that I can use to collect, connect with people living with HIV and to help to shift some of this stigma. And um, 
And one day the word podcast came into my head. And pause is a colloquial, like a slang that queer people use to describe people who are HIV positive. P-O-Z is slang for positive. Um, and the word podcast just came into my mind. <laughs> I was like, oh, boom, I'm going to do a podcast for people living with HIV. And I've been telling you before we came on air that I've been listening to it and I've learned so much, even in dipping out of a few episodes to make sure, you know, I, I, I had understood you before we spoke. All of a sudden, I realised how little I knew. Why do you think we stopped as a society talking about HIV? I mean, I was a child in the 80s and I still remember that ad campaign for how dangerous HIV was. And I can still see it now. There was like a big tombstone. I think yeah. it said AIDS across the top and just fell down. Yeah. And why aren't we talking about you equals you? I learned it on your podcast. I still thought, obviously, with empathy, that it was still quite dangerous and could be passed on. And, I, you know, I thought that must be very tough. But that's not even a fact anymore. Why isn't there a big campaign to spread that? Isn't it exciting just to to note as well that now someone living with HIV is the safest person that you could have sex with because we know our status and we also know that we can't pass it on to you. That's a scientific fact. It's people who don't test and don't know their status. That's the reason that we still have growing numbers of people living with HIV year on year here in Ireland. Um, yeah, and it's wild that people don't know about you equals you, and I've made it my mission to help ensure that they do. But I think the real reason is because of the stigma and shame and how traumatic AIDS was and how many people died and the miserable circumstances they died in because there was a moral outrage, like society shunned these people. It's a really ugly part of our recent history that nobody wants to look at. And so because people aren't invested in diminishing HIV stigma, that shadow has just stayed there and it's kept people like me in the closet way longer than they need to be. The exciting part is now young people who receive a diagnosis often get over it a lot quicker because they know about you equals you, but also because of resources like our podcast. And I've met people who've received a diagnosis. Of course, they're going to struggle with it initially, but a few weeks later have listened to every episode of our podcast. And I think, wow, if I could have done that, you know, yeah. how different my experience would be. Um, so I think what we really need is more investment. Money is the answer. We were in Sydney for World Pride. I say we, I mean, Robbie Lawler and I are, um, we're the Burton Ernie of HIV. We're the Paws <laughs> and Becks of HIV, I like to Love say. Love it. Um, we were brought there by the Irish Consulate and the Sydney Queer Irish, credit to them, invited us to World Pride to represent Ireland. And we got to attend lots of amazing events, give talks, screen our movie, How to Tell a Secret. We should talk about that too. Um, and work with the NGOs in Sydney, who are the best, literally the best in the world. Uh, a few weeks ago, Sydney announced that they are on track to zero HIV transmissions, no new transmissions at all. That's not happening here in Ireland. And we had the same tools, we had the same kind of society, but we don't have the investment from the government. And we just don't have enough activists and enough public interest to really 
put it on the agenda. Yeah. And um, I think something you say, even in the description of your podcast, it's for the community, people living with HIV, but it's also for allies. So you don't have to have HIV to want to speak up about this. Yeah, not at all. In fact, it's great if you speak up about it. You would be amazed how many people. There's around 7,000 people in Ireland living with HIV and you would be amazed how many never come out to anyone about it, certainly to very few people. And you're around these people all the time and you just never know. So how you talk about it and the fact that you talk about it and the fact that you are an ally can be huge in ways that you'll never even know. And if you're lucky, you will know. Because if you're lucky and you're a good enough ally, they'll tell you and you'll know how to handle it, (laughs) you know? Which is to say, this changes nothing between us. And if you need me, I'm here for you, you know? Simple. And how have you found stepping into that role as an activist now and coming down into the layers of not just destroying stigma and using creativity to spread a message, but learning about issues with government funding, policy? You know, it's a whole different ballgame. Access to medicine, you know. I get very emotional at at this point in any conversation because... I used to cry a lot about HIV, initially my own. Then when we started doing the podcast, I would cry about other people's experiences and I would cry nearly every episode. But to be honest, you know, as you accept yourself more and and build this community of friends living with HIV, it becomes much less of a big deal. And we've always laughed about it. We're queer people. But now we laugh about it more and cry about it less until we talk about things like access to medicine and the fact that there's nearly a million children on the planet who don't have access to life-saving medication that we all have here for free and that should cost nothing. You know, that if you produce generics of these medications, you can produce them for next to nothing and we could medicate everybody on the planet who is living with HIV and then no one would be able to pass it on to someone else and that would end HIV. That's the work that they're doing now in Sydney, for example. But as long as the intellectual property rests with Big Pharma and Big Pharma is about making money, there will be people dying of AIDS. You know, it's been going on since the 1980s. It's unreal to think that now, 40 years later, children are dying of AIDS when we have medication that could save them. And I am obsessed with pushing for change. And I think sometimes it can be really overwhelming. Uh, and you think it sounds so simple. Like when you lay it out like that, you're thinking, why why aren't we doing this? Yeah. And all we can control as well as using our voices and speaking up is is the world around us. And that's step one, isn't it? To break down the barriers and start talking. Yeah. And to be creative, I think is huge. Um, I'm in a fortunate position. I'm going to, I guess, first talk about How to Tell a Secret, which is a documentary that Robbie and I collaborated with, Invisible Thread, Anna, Sean Dunn, to make this beautiful documentary about living with HIV in modern Ireland. And it's on the RT player right now, if I'm allowed to say that. You are. And it uh, it was given kind of a graveyard shift, as Maya Dunphy described it, you know, put on late at night on a Monday night at 11.30, which to be honest, sort of broke my heart. But um, but thanks to the fabulous uh, Irish influencers, especially the queer ones, um, we got an awful lot of views on the player and we trended on the player all week. And that's really because I guess my response to getting this bad TV slot was to push back quite strongly. And I contacted lots of amazing influencers that... James Kavanagh and um, Tara Kumar and 
the I'm Grand Mam people and the gorgeous Maya Dunphy and uh, Brian Dowling and the list goes on. Uh, Panty, of course. And I put the trailer on my Instagram page the morning that the film was going to be aired. And by lunchtime, it had about 150,000 views, just my post of the player, because I reached out to these people and asked them to help me. And to their credit, they really did. It's mind blowing the support that you can get if people understand how passionate you are and how hard you work. There's no real barriers to that stuff. You know, you just ask and you receive. I call it manifesting. It's not just manifesting, it's manifesting. <laughs> and I love that because, you know, the, the Channel 4 series, It's a Sin, had a big shift, but that it was it was given mainstream. It was given a lot of advertising. And I suppose that's what you wanted. You don't necessarily want to preach to the community who are already on yeah, board. Exactly. You want to beam into sitting rooms of people whose minds could be changed yeah, or I, opened. I presume that there, there'd be trailers or ads or promotion on TV for the film. Crickets, nothing. And I don't think people understand how simple. If people only saw the trailers and the ads and didn't stay up to watch it at half 11, we still could have reached those people and, and given them a you equals you message or made them understand how different it is to live with HIV now. But because we didn't get that support, it was just such a lost opportunity. But like I said, thanks to the power of the internet and the fact that nobody can control that, there was this great pushback, which may be went in our favour, you know? Yeah, big time. And it was a big success. And are you working on another film about yes. your life now? Do you say biopic or biopic? I say biopic, but I spell biopic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, That's happening. Yes, yes. Uh, we're in the middle of making it right now with um, Taller Stories, who are wonderful people. They approached me about doing it because of the podcast. And um, Colin is the writer and we did a couple of interviews and and we wrote this script. He wrote this script. I add a little lot of it. So I say we. <laughs> and we are, we've been working on it. I am Robbie, Robbie Lawler, who's my podcasting partner, is playing the young Panty Bliss in the movie. Um, and Panty Bliss herself, of course, is in the film. And there's about 12 people living with HIV in the film, which might be a first. I don't know if that's happened before. Or if it has, it's been a secret. Yeah. Exactly. And it's uh, there was only one in It's a Sin, my good friend Nathaniel, but only one in all of It's a Sin, which is shocking. When you think, okay, that's what you're making the film about, but you don't care to engage with those people to make this film. Interesting. Bizarre. But anyway, um, and it's got a, a lot of you equals you and HIV TED Talk energy, but it's also a camp romp through my life, uh, which has been quite a surreal and fun club kid to, <laughs> to cougar experience. I don't want to assume that you needed a younger version of yourself, but is there one and who, who, who is it? His name is Adrian Duggan and he's uh, 21 in two weeks when we were having a party for him at my club in the George. He's going to be 21 and he's been living with HIV since he was 17 and he's a beautiful twinkle. Um, a twink is like a young gay guy, but he's a twinkle. He's a little star. And, um, and he's training to be a nurse. And he, he came out about his HIV status last year at an event we did uh, at the George on the eve of World AIDS Day. And all of our tribe were there, our Pos5 tribe, who are the people who are out living with HIV that we work with. Um, so he got to join our family at that young age. And uh, he really caught my eye. He's such a brilliant guy. I think he's an amazing one to watch for future activism. 
And so I nabbed him to play me <laughs> in the film. And even like that description of him and training to be a nurse, having HIVs is very much a one part of, of, of who he is. And it made me really well up. This work that you're doing, Enda, is is incredible. It Thank really you. is to Thank be using you. your platform like this to bring about real change. Um, you'll Thank have to you. come back. On Let's go for a cocktail. Oh, defo. <laughs> I want in. I'll have to go to your next bloody club Mary. night. Come on, it's Sunday. We can have a Bloody Mary. <laughs> we certainly can. Um, it is Pause Vibes. Check it out. I mean, I was so bowled over by how little I knew about HIV, it it stunned me. It really stunned me. It's something that just isn't necessarily on my radar, but it should be. And it should be on all our radars. And thank you for bringing it to my attention. Thank you, especially especially for women. I think there are so many women living with HIV in the world. And now there's as many women as men. And women don't really get spoken to or speak about HIV at all until they receive a devastating diagnosis. So think about that, listeners. Get tested. Tests are free on the HSE. Just get on the website there and you can get one discreetly sent to your home. Yeah. And I I mean, I think I thought the fight in many ways was over, but it's not. There is much for all of us to fight for. So I'm in your tribe. I hope. Enda McGrattan, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much. So that's it for Live and Kicking for this week. My thanks to my producer Aoife Breen, to Simon Keane and to Hugo De Silva Scott, who was on sound. And thanks as ever to you for listening. I will see you next week. Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna, Sunday morning at 8 on News Talk.